Welcome to the National Gallery of Art Film Program, a podcast offering a deeper understanding of the art of film. In Through a Lens Darkly, filmmaker Thomas Allen Harris addresses the portrayal of African Americans since the time of photography's invention. Harris uncovers his own family albums and expands his research to black portrait photographers and artists who profoundly reshaped the image of a people, constructing a powerful message of hope and self-determination. Producer and writer Don Perry visited the gallery on May 31, 2015, to discuss the film, which screened as part of the film series American Experiments in Narrative, 2000 to 2015. My name is Don Perry, and I'm the writer-producer on Through a Lens Darkly, Black Photographers and the Emergence of a People. The book uh, by Deborah Willis, Reflections in Black, uh, Black Photographers from 1840 to the Present, is the genesis behind the film. Uh, when the book was, was published, she approached Thomas Allen Harris, the, the director, writer, producer of the film, uh, to make a movie about it. Uh, because of Thomas's previous work, working with the family archive and family photographs, uh, she felt that uh, his approach would be a really good one for the film. Making this film uh, was especially challenging, uh, not the least of which because of all the material that, that we had to work with. We interviewed 52 people, uh, 26 photographers, 26 scholars, uh, all focused on photographs and photography within the, the, the black subject uh, and the black body. The other element about it was that Thomas doesn't make documentaries. Uh, at least they're called documentaries because that's the box you have to check off on the uh, the film festival application. But what Thomas does is really to create long-form visual essays. Uh, and this particular film, uh, the, 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 the narrative for the film, really, I think, came together once we hit upon the idea of making the family album as the central motif. That came to us, really, as a, a direct result of putting the film together in, in terms of the, the initial research. So initially, based on Deborah Willis's work, we had a number of archives that we could go to in order to, to find photographs. Uh, and through that process, we found probably nine or 10,000 images. Through additional work, because we were looking for very specific kinds of images in order to illustrate or, or to go with certain uh, historical time periods, we found another 5,000 images. But because we were still not getting the images that we wanted or needed, uh, you know, Thomas said, well, why don't we do something that would allow us to get these more family pictures? And then the light bulb went off, family. We started to look at the images that we'd collected. And the thing about those images is that they weren't really meant to be public images. They, they weren't designed to be in a museum. When those images were taken, they were taken with this express purpose of, as Leopold Senghore says, to connect one person's eyes with another's heart. They were family photographs. And they weren't singular. They were fit into an album 
uh, people would, would carry these things with them, and, and they'd go through the pages. And that became then for us the aha moment, uh, to quote Brian Wallace, uh, where the, the whole language for the film, if you will, the whole context and framing for the film really got started, where we, we wanted to take and fit these images then into their original context, but in a, in a meta sense, not just a singular family album. But if we were to take your family album, my family album, uh, their family albums, and put them all together side by side, what we're beginning to create out of that is a narrative that kind of explains a little bit who we are collectively. And so the more of that layering that we could put into the film, what we would ultimately wind up with then was this idea of a new American family album that is more inclusive, that's more diverse, that reflects the full nuances of who we are as a people and not a very small, narrow uh, narrative uh, that someone had in mind when they began to curate it. Unlike a lot of African-American images or, or images or films that deal with images, um, ours had a very specific start time. Photography was invented in 1839. Before that, there was no photography. After that, you have the successive explosion of different techniques, different uh, you know, leaps in terms of how you can make a photograph. And so photography enlarges. At, at each one of those junctions, you go from the daguerreotype to the tintype uh, to the album and prints to, you know, it just continues. And so part of what the film had as a structure, as a backbone, was that historical fact. Um, you also had more images being made as time went on. So there was, there was more material to choose from. So that kind of augmented the idea of having that kind of historical uh, benchmark or the, those, those historical checkpoints to work from. But in putting the film together, we didn't want to be constrained necessarily by the timeline. We had to deal with it because it's a fact. Um, you know, certain people come at certain times, certain things are possible at certain times. But the way we tried to deal with the, the, the subjects within the film uh, was really to kind of frame them in terms of, of larger issues, meta issues, um, to look at, uh, at a generalized idea and then see how that is filtered down uh, with the timeline perhaps overlaid on that. But uh, that really wasn't our initial desire. Uh, it was to, you know, we, we really wanted to explode uh, this idea of time and to create something that would transcend the timeline. The idea of the negative stereotypes, or the negative images in the film, um, was a, a, a tricky one in a sense. Um, Part of it had to do with the when, when the stereotype became codified, when we knew that's the image that's going to represent those people. Um, 
And so part of what, and, and those images have changed. They've been with us since African-Americans were brought to the country uh, all the way back. They, they were caricatures. They were cartoons. Uh, they, there, were, there were, in popular culture, visual images, not photographs, but visual representations uh, that were meant to, to, to tell people this is what an African-American is. In 1850, though, particularly with J.T. Zeely and uh, the Agassiz portraits, that became the, the kind of the, the flagpole for now we are going to be able to show you what we've been saying to you in terms of who they are. And that was really the first time photography was used in a very particular way to, to cement an idea uh, uh, in terms of the representation of black people. So the Agassiz uh, slave daguerreotypes are a series of images of families in a South Carolina plantation. Um, a father, a daughter, um, a husband, wife, uh, and a grandparent. And the whole point of those images was to depict black people in a way that would categorically underline their inferiority and the fact that they were therefore best suited to be enslaved people. Uh, the, the portraits are unusual because they're all taken without clothes. And even for anthropological photography, in the, at that early point in, in the development of, of the field, no subject was ever shown without clothing. That, that was considered to be uh, against the mores uh, of that time. But it also then speaks to the mindset of the people creating those images, the fact that they felt it was okay to show those subjects without clothes uh, because they were not human. They weren't like the rest of us. And so the whole point and purpose of that, that entire album of images uh, was to underscore that point. And, and, and that's what the Agassiz uh, slave daguerreotypes uh, were, were, were all about. But after those images started to, to, to make their way, not, I won't say in popular culture, because they were still risque in, in some places, but amongst the learned folks of that time, um, the other images began to be created as well. Uh, the film talks to the, the, the mass production of these negative stereotypical images that show African Americans as, as, as criminals, uh, as less intelligent, as lazy, um, as thieves, uh, things that, um, you know, if you really wanted to, to, to kind of explode where those came from, uh, we like to make the connection between the, the photographs, 1850, and Uncle Tom's Cabin, 1850, because the, the, the language for, for, for mass stereo, stereotypes of black subjects were, was really codified in Uncle Tom's Cabin. Um, the, uh, the, 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 the mulatto, uh, the, uh, the pickaninny, uh, the, uh, the, the violent brute, um, the, uh, the kindly old Uncle Tom. I mean, those became, you know, and, and at that time, understand, most Americans had never even seen a black person. They didn't know what they looked like. They, they, it was just an idea, something running around in the ether. They had no idea what, what African Americans looked like. Then they read the book, Those Who Could Read, uh, or they saw the play 
which was even bigger impact than, than the book. And then suddenly, oh, it began to fit in terms of what they had been told about black people. Uh, prior to 1850s, you had minstrelsy and you had uh, uh, all of the uh, stereotypes that, that were kind of beginning to be uh, codified out of minstrelsy into Uncle Tom's Cabin. Now you have the photographic evidence that gives you a realistic depiction, which is the way photographs kind of for, for people at that time to look at one. Wow, that's real. That's that's what I you know, that that's the that's what they are. They didn't have our media at that time. Um, what they were generally, what people would refer to, uh, you had a few popular um, uh, broadsheets, as they were called, uh, kind of like tabloids today. Uh, and, and a lot of people, you know, would in, 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 so you'd be the, the postmaster in a little town. Uh, you'd be the person who would get the, the newspaper from the big city somewhere, and you'd tack it up on the wall at the post office, and people would come and they'd read it there, or you'd read it to them, or someone in, else in the village who could read would, would read it. Otherwise, they would look at the, look at the pictures. Um, cartoons uh, were a very quick uh, way of communicating information to people because most people couldn't read. And so there, what you had cartoonists... Uh, made you know, that was news. Um, I mean, we may find it hard to believe today uh, that you know, if I'm reading the funny papers, that I'm actually being informed. But that's what it was, uh, as opposed to being entertained. But back then, that was being informed. That was how you know, news was communicated. Was in cartoon form, with all of of, of then the uh, you know the, the the particular narrative and the stereotype and whatever the meaning message was uh, by the people who drew it. Um, but what photography was able to do then you know, it was to short circuit some of that. Now, it's one thing to have a caricature on a on, on a piece of paper. It's another to have a visual reproduction of something from real life. That's what it is. And people were not necessarily able to read those images that they saw. They, they, they just assumed that if it was a photograph, because they knew that at the time, in order to make that photograph, you know, you're standing still, it could take an hour to expose the film, uh, that's real. That, 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 that's a real physical act that had to be made. Uh, so they just naturally assumed that if you saw it in, you know, as a picture, that's the reality. And so partly in reaction, well not no, mainly in reaction to that, you had black photographers, African-American leaders, and just citizens saying, well, wait a minute, that's not reality. And, and using the earlier antecedents from Sojourner Truth uh, and from Frederick Douglass, they created images in order to try to counteract the, the onslaught of all of this negative imaging that was out there. So one of the things that we wanted to do in making the film that is not in Deborah Willis's book uh, was to try to show the, that larger context against which a lot of the black photographers were making their images because it, it informs us a little bit more then as to what their urgency was. It, it tells us a little bit now um, why they may have chosen certain sub subjects to, to photograph or why they photographed people in certain places the way they did. Um, one of the things that comes through, I think, in the film is that, you, you know, and as some people have said, is that, well, you see all these images of these well-dressed 
you know, rather rather well-off looking African Americans, uh, and and they find that hard to to believe, given the history that's come down to us, and and our response is well. Yes, there were a lot of very wealthy or very uh, middle-class African-Americans that were taking their images and, and, and certainly making those representations for their families. There were also uh, this idea of aspirational photography, that I want to be seen in a particular way. I may be a washerwoman, I may be a, a laborer, but when I go into that studio and I'm taking that photograph that I'm going to share with someone that's going to be a keepsake for a long time, I want them to see me as I see myself. And I don't see myself wearing broken down clothes or, 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 or looking you know, uh, uh, ill-dressed. Ill I, I want to show my best. And so even today, that, that hangover, you go to the photography studio, you want to look your best. It's the same thing. They did it then, too. Frederick Douglass very early on saw the power of photography in, in order to propel his message to the wider culture uh, that African Americans are people and they are deserved of all of the, the rights and privileges of citizens of this country. And that all of the philosophical ideas behind the founding of this country should apply to them, to us, as well. How do you do that in an illiterate country when the, the cards are literally stacked against you? Every single time he went out of the house, after photography, he, he had to present himself in a particular way to change the way people thought of the black subject. Wow, he could look like that. Wow, and that's a black man looking. Wow, I didn't know. And yes, all of the things about the articulate, articulateness, uh, the, the, the demeanor, the gravitas that he had, I mean, all of that. Was it an act? Well, maybe not. Uh, you know, in part perhaps, but when you read the history of the man you know, in, in his own uh, his own writings, um, this is a, a pretty powerful man who had always had, uh, from the moment that he was born, he was told by his mother that you can do anything, you know, even then. And so he's born in, into bondage, and she's saying to him, "You can do better." You're not, this is not the end of your life. You're going to do better. So he had, had it ingrained in him. Um, he, he got out of slavery. Uh, he fought his way out of slavery. Um, this is a man who had every right to have that bearing, that, that regalness, that, that, that pride um, that comes through in those photographs. Uh, and at the same time, when he saw the first photographs, he understood, aha, now we have a way of showing us the way we see ourselves to a larger audience so that these illiterate folks out there who are getting all their information from little uh, you know, crinkly newspaper or, or broadsheets uh, in terms of these stereotypical images, now they have to be confronted with this image my image or the images of, of, of some other uh, prominent African-Americans who also had their portraits taken at the time uh, that you couldn't deny they existed. 
Uh, and so it, it, there was a political intent. And in his uh, newspaper, The North Star, he spread that word, and he actually actively encouraged African Americans to take up the camera, not only uh, as, as a way to put their own images out there, but also as a, as a way to become self-employed. Because as a, as, a, as a black photographer, you are your own boss. No one sets your hours. You are in business for yourself, and this is a way to be self-sufficient. And in 1850, 1860, 1870 America, having your own trade is a very big deal. And a lot of black photographers were inspired by that, took up the camera, created businesses, and were very, very successful, incredibly successful in some cases. So, in fact, one of the things we couldn't get to in the film is just so much. Um, the number of African Americans who had invented new processes in photography that then became you know, the next great thing. Everybody in the field would have to do it. Uh, they became incredibly uh, successful. They won a lot of prizes, uh, even from uh, white uh, photographers in, in state fairs and in public uh, you know, competitions. Uh, so not only were they the, you know, setting up their own studios, taking taking their own subjects, but they were also advancing the technology that has come down to us today as photography. Booker T. Washington is uh, an incredibly complex figure, not only within African American history, but within history of, of the country. This is a man who, in 1901, had his portrait taken at lunch with Theodore Roosevelt in the White House. And the photograph of that, that luncheon meeting uh, was circulated in all the major newspapers of the day. And Roosevelt uh, took incredible heat from within his own party about how could you have you know, that man sullying the White House. And Booker T. Washington received death threats for years. But he understood the incredible power of photography to advance the narrative that African Americans are people and that they are citizens and that they can contribute to the building of this country. They've already have, but just to get people to understand the, 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 the fact of, of their contribution to the building of the country. Um, at that moment in time, international exhibitions were huge. Um, countries competed in order to be the, the, uh, the sponsor and host of them. Uh, and then once uh, the, the, the city had been chosen, they competed in terms of the exhibitions that they would send to, to the, these uh, world's fairs. Uh, in fact, we, we didn't go into it a lot, but we showed some of the imaging from the 1893 world's exhibition in Chicago. Uh, there, there was a cartoon image um, of African Americans in the film uh, with all the stereotypes uh, from uh, the bones in the nose, the spears, and the watermelons. Uh, but in 1893, the, what's important about that exhibition was the fact that it, it was one of the last that was attended by Frederick Douglass, and it was the first time that African Americans were allowed into a World's Fair as patrons, as guests. Um, 
because when the 1893 exhibition was being put together, uh, uh, Frederick Douglass made a, a very loud, long you know, protest that African Americans should be presented here. This was a, a, a you know, the post um, Civil War, post Reconstruction, and, it, and he, at that point he planted the idea of wanting to show African American progress. Uh, the other thing that's important about that is that that World's Fair gave us Ida B. Wells and her uh, in, entire presentation on lynching. That was the first time that that was raised in a public way. The other thing that comes out of that 1893 exhibition, interestingly enough, uh, is a woman named Mrs. Green uh, who had a booth in the middle of the midway uh, where she sold this new hot invention called pancakes. And even though we don't call her Mrs. Green these days, back then, that was the first appearance of Aunt Jemima. Um, fast forward. <laughs> 1900, um, the Paris Exhibition. That was the, a real coming of age for the world because now we're, we're in this incredible world of, of tomorrow from the perspective of 1893 or, or even, even earlier. Uh, we have electric lights. We have moving sidewalks. We have all these technological advances that, that's just... It was like their version of Jules Verne's World of Tomorrow coming and, and, and being you know, in one place. Everybody, and it was the turn of the century. Everyone had an interest, every country had an interest in presenting the best of, of, of themselves at that exhibition. And Booker T. Washington wanted to have an exhibition that showed the progress of African Americans and how important they were uh, in helping to build the country and making it the modern marvel that it, that it was becoming. But he was getting a lot of pushback from folks in Washington that they didn't, didn't want African Americans to be there. They didn't see, you know, there was nothing, nothing to show. So because of, of the fact that he had been overseas doing a lot of speeches, raising money for Tuskegee, uh, Booker T. Washington wrote to some friends of his in Paris, the host city, and suggested to them that, well, you know, it would be really nice to have an exhibition. We would love to participate. Uh, at that point, he was thinking in terms of from Tuskegee. They thought it was a marvelous idea. Uh, they had heard him. They respected him. His photographs circulated widely uh, in, in Europe, uh, certainly by design, um, as part of his fundraising for, for, for the school. So the people in Paris, the, the people putting together the exhibition, wrote to the U.S. government and, and said, we are inviting uh, Tuskegee uh, and the American Negro to, uh, to participate and be a part of, of the exhibition. Well, when your closest ally um, has invited people that you didn't want there, you can't tell them, well, they can't go. So reluctantly, uh, the U.S. government decided that they would make a little bit of money available for a Negro exhibit at the Paris exhibition. Um, the issue then became within the black community now that this, this was a great opportunity. It's a great moment to show the progress of the Negro race, to show us uh, in, in, on an international level uh, as a people with a history, a people of progress, a people with a modern outlook. And there was a lot of movement within uh, the black leadership of who would be presenting what uh, to show at that exhibition. 
Booker T. Washington was, by many accounts, you know, the number one man. I mean, he, he was the guy that, that, that everybody had to, to do some obeisance to in order to, to get anything done because he had the political and the business power behind him for Tuskegee. I mean, he, he'd met with presidents and vice presidents and all the, the main business leaders of the day. So if anybody could do anything, it was him. But he was a very controversial figure within the black community as well, um, because as we show in the film, there's a little excerpt from uh, the Atlanta um, exposition speech of 1896. And in that speech, he basically talks about uh, the progress of the South uh, and, and the fact that you've got uh, three million African Americans in the South and that nothing, no progress can take place unless they are also part of it. Um, because they're one of the largest uh, population blocks in, in the South. Um, and his idea of progress was not to spook uh, the, 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 the majority community and the idea that, that but, but to talk about African Americans in a accommodationist role. Um, we'll be the carpenters, we'll be the nurses, we'll be um, you know, the, the, the people on the fringe, but we're all going to be pushing toward the center. Um, as opposed to uh, some of the more black nationalist-leaning folks at the time, of whom uh, W.B. Du Bois uh, was certainly one of the leading lights, and the Niagara Movement uh, and the idea of, of, of African Americans going for full citizenship uh, and, and really to be more uh, forward about the, the, the desire and the demand for, for equal rights. Um, so there was this clash between the elements in black leadership that wanted to push very hard and have a very um, you know, strong representation in that exhibition, and Tuskegee's uh, president, who wanted to have something perhaps a little less flamboyant. Um, now, the compromise was uh, he would put W.B. Du Bois in charge of curating the exhibition. At the time, Du Bois was a leading scholar. He'd gotten uh, his PhD from, from Harvard. Uh, he, he was a, a pioneer in the early uh, sociology, field of sociology, uh, ethnography, of uh, putting statistics uh, behind the research. Uh, and so it was seen as a safe choice. But Washington also wanted to keep him very close and, uh, under very tight control because he, 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 he was a little concerned as to what this guy would really do if he kind of got away from him. So they settled on, um, had to settle on a photographer, and they had to, to pick subjects that they were going to be uh, selecting people for. And what you have in that exhibition are kind of like uh, two separate Photo photographic representations, or three, three separate photographic representations. You have uh, a lot of images from Tuskegee, African Americans at work, uh, doing the kinds of things that Tuskegee was very good at, the, the nursing schools, the carpentry schools, um, you know, people in the sciences, um, uh, people doing uh, you know, uh, brickwork and things, masonry, uh, all of that. And then you have images, singular images of, of, of black portraits. Um, the 
interesting thing about those portraits is that in, in, in curating them, what the boys wanted to do, because it was very popular, um, you know, the, the, the newspapers would use, uh, just like they do today, uh, portraits of mugshots. And the, the, the overweening depiction of African Americans at that time that people saw were black mugshots, police blotter kind of things. And so what he wanted to do was to frame African Americans in the same kind of pose, but to show them the way they are. So you have this incredible wealth of images uh, of African Americans that are nicely dressed, but just in the same uh, framing that you would have in a mugshot. No controversy there. The last part of it is, is kind of where Du Bois went off the deep end, if you will, uh, and kind of went a little bit further, perhaps, than, uh, than Booker T. Washington would, may, may have preferred. And he wanted to show uh, African Americans in their everyday lives as citizens uh, who were self-sufficient and, and in control of their own destinies. So he was showing business people in their businesses. He was showing the homes uh, of African-American uh, families. He was showing families uh, in ways that, you know, the, these are not, um, these are doctors and lawyers and, and educators and teachers. These are not masonry and carpentry and nursing. These are not servile folks. These are self-assured, self-possessed um, you know, leaders in their own way. Uh, and so what we get as, a, as, a, as an exhibit, uh, maybe not necessarily intended by Booker T. Washington, who was a little bit ill and who would wind up dying not too late, long after the, uh, the Paris exhibition, uh, what we get then is a much more nuanced representation of, of black life post-Civil uh, War, post-Reconstruction, uh, um, and, and, and even within the context of, of, of a Jim Crow South, we have a lot of representation of people that, wow, you know, I didn't know that existed. Um, and maybe you know, as a reality within black world, uh, you know, to the outsider uh, at 1900, they may not have expected to find some, some of these representations. One of the things that, that struck us as we were, you know, as we were doing the film, uh, and we were very conscious of, uh, was to have this balance in terms of the the, the, the voices and the representation uh, across uh, the black uh, community. So we didn't want to have it to be so heavily masculine. For every male, we wanted to have at least one female, and we, and we tried to be very, very um, you know, equal and, and even-handed that way. Um, so it was natural for us. And in terms of our, of our subjects, uh, the people that we interviewed, we tried to make sure that of the 26 photographers, uh, that we tried to balance it out so that there was some strong representation. If it couldn't be 50-50, then we had a little bit more in terms of the scholar side. We had 26 scholars that we interviewed. so you know, But we tried to make sure that we had equal representation. And, and one of the more fascinating elements within the film, I think, is the whole section that we have on women photographers, uh, starting with um, mostly in the, the very, very late uh, 19th, early to mid 20th century, um, 
we just don't have a whole lot of, of, of historical reference really before that. Uh, but we know they had to have been there uh, because uh, of the women photographers that, that were active in the early part of the 20th century, uh, their subjects were other women. And we have a lot of photographs of women uh, going all the way back to the beginning of photography. So we, it couldn't all have been done. Um, but that's just, that's this part that's speculation. The part that's real, though, uh, is that uh, between um, the work that Jeannie Montesumi Ash did um, in Viewfinders, which is the name of her book, uh, where she co tries to, to to create the the women photographer uh, compendium that to match uh, Deb Willis's book, we've got uh, some amazing stories of women photographers uh, who worked not all over the country, uh, from the Northeast. Uh, Winifred Allen was uh, one of the, the, the women that we featured in the film. Uh, we, she has a great archive uh, that, that depicts the side of New England uh, that I think would be really unusual for people to, to say, wow, okay. Because you don't think about the longstanding African-American communities that are in the Northeast. Uh, and yet here's the depiction. Um, she has uh, Jeannie's book, and, and we reference in the film, uh, certainly going back to uh, New Orleans, um, but there were women photographers on the West Coast um, uh, that, that were filming uh, the Hollywood stars, because you know, this is now in the 1940s, 1950s, uh, that, um, that, that she was working. And, and you had black stars. It was a black movie industry. And we, we know who they were and what they looked like, because here are the images by a woman photographer. Um, it's, um, there's still work to be done to put together the history. Uh, one of, the, one of the, the major people that we look at is Florestine Peralt Collins. Um, and Florestine Collins was one of 101 black women photographers in the entire country in the 1905, 1910 census. Um, so in her life, in her story, in New Orleans, we, it, it, it's fascinating. It, it makes you really want to know more then about some of the others that, that were out there. Um, and what's also interesting is that Florestine Collins' history, she started her studio by herself. She didn't have a brother, didn't have a husband um, or other family member, uh, and she was just the assistant. She set up the business herself. She learned the, the, the tools of the trade herself, and she held out her own shingle as her own uh, self-possessed, uh, uh, you know, independent businesswoman. Uh, and, and she was one of 101 that did that. And so that that uh, that by itself, in, in, and and then worked for roughly sixty odd years, covering New Orleans, everything. I mean, from uh, uh, you know, christenings and baptisms and weddings uh, to hard news stories. I mean, she she was photographing images that would go into uh, you know, the, uh, the the hard news uh, newspapers. Uh, so that she had a very very diverse uh, set of, uh, of, of photographic images that she took. You've been listening to a National Gallery of Art film program podcast.